The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 26 to 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good afternoon, New Hope Fellowship. Um, and visitors. My name is Brian Lee, and if you couldn't tell by those couple of quirks there, um, I'm the youth director here at New Hope Fellowship, and today, the only reason I do that is to just annoy those guys, so I have the privilege and weighty responsibility of bringing to you guys God's word. We need his help. I need his help, so allow, would you join with me in praying? Is this okay? Okay. All right. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and we thank you for all that are gathered here to hear your word today. Lord, may it be your word and not mine. And may you help us, Lord, to understand in such a familiar passage, Lord, one that we read pretty much every single year at least once, probably more times than once. Let the familiarity not distract us, Lord, or cause us to zone out, but let us tune into what you have to say, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Uh, today we find ourselves in the book of Luke, but before we get into the main text, I wanted to give you a brief introduction that I hope will help us understand this passage a little bit better. So would you guys please turn to Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4 with me? I don't think it's going to be up there, so um, yes, there's some pew Bibles, it'll have some similar text, but or if you have your phones... We're going to be in the first paragraph of Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4, just for a few minutes here. All right. So Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who have from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Of the many details Luke includes in this introduction, one word that stands out the most to me and maybe for you as well, is the word certainty. Certainty. In verse 4, Luke tells us that he has decided to write an orderly account for a man named Theophilus so that he could have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. Now, we don't know too much about this man named Theophilus or what this man did or what the events were that were leading up to Luke writing this narrative specifically for Theophilus. 
But there are some things that we can infer based off of the text that we read. One thing that we can infer is that given the context of what Luke proceeds to write in the whole book of Luke, from the first chapter to the last, it's highly likely that the things that were taught to Theophilus were things concerning Jesus Christ. Because if you haven't read the book of Luke, it's all about Jesus Christ. Another thing that we can infer is that based off of what Theophilus had been taught about Jesus so far, it seems like he was still lacking some kind of certainty. And the last thing I want to point out is that Luke's own certainty about who Jesus was, what he did, what he taught, how he died, how he rose from the dead, how he ascended into heaven, is precisely why he was able to make such a bold claim to say that by reading these very words, you could have confidence that Jesus was who he said he was and that he was absolutely worth following even if it cost Theophilus his job, his high standing status, or even his own life. And the same goes for us today. Whether you are a seasoned believer or a new Christian or maybe a non-believer, or someone who has just been greatly hurt by the church in the past. Luke's book is written for us so that by reading these very words, we may have certainty regarding the truth about who Jesus Christ is. And not just certainty in our minds to increase our knowledge so that it just puffs up, but as one commentator puts it, certainty in your heart so that it actually becomes the fiber of your being. It becomes who you are. It becomes your identity. He goes on to say, the commentator says, such knowledge may be yours, says Luke. How? By some mystical experience? By a deep study of philosophy? No. By reading and meditating on the plain facts of the story of Jesus set out in his gospel, in this gospel. So, As we press into his words today, as we press into an oh-so-familiar story about Jesus, I plead with you to consider the certainty with which Luke wrote these words and the certainty for which he wanted his readers to gain about the promised Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. So let's go to Luke chapter 1, 26 through 33. Uh, We're going to spend a little time in the paragraph after 33 as well, so um, you you can just keep your Bibles open as well. So Luke chapter 1, 26 through 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at that saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God, or Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke begins this section by introducing to us an angel named 
Gabriel. There's not much we know about Gabriel or about angels, as a matter of fact, but there is some biblical context we do know that actually intensifies this beautiful moment when Gabriel was sent by God to deliver the good news of Mary, to deliver the good news to Mary, not of Mary. There's no good news of Mary. For one, we know that since the beginning of our world, angels had existed and had been spectators of all of God's glorious work. How do we know that? Job 38, 4 through 7 tells us that as God worked to lay the foundation of our earth in creation, his angels were there singing together and shouting for joy. So think of it like a big crowd um, at a basketball game or um, a football game. I feel like football fans are a little bit more rowdy and, and fun. And if they were there at the beginning as God created the earth, then perhaps, perhaps they were also there when Satan tempted Adam and Eve to sin, devastating the glory of God's creation that they were just cheering for. In that moment, do you think that their singing and their shouts of joy turned to nothing? Like they were silenced, the crowd was silenced? What about when they witnessed then the next action? For the first time, God's mercy and his judgment through his promise that one day he would send a savior, one who would crush the head of Satan. Did they erupt in singing and shouts of joy again? I'm not sure. I don't think anyone's really sure yet. But one thing we do know is that the angels were aware that sin was a problem. They were aware that God's plan, God had a plan to deal with this said problem. And 1 Peter 1, through, uh, 1, chapter 1, verse 12 tells us that actually these angels, they were longing to see the plan of God unfold. They were eager to see how God would save humanity from sin. They were eager to see how God would save this sin-infested world. Now, can you imagine that for a second, what, what it's like? I, I know this is so hypothetical and we don't even know what angels look like, and whatever we do think they look like, it's probably not that. But imagine this. Here we are on earth wondering what angels look like, right? People always draw angels, and they want to know, and there's probably a study of angels called something. But we're curious, right? We want to know what they sound like, what they look like. How fast are they? Can they teleport? Can they read our minds? Probably not. And then there the angels are, wherever they are right now, and they're on their toes, like Steve was saying last week. They're on their toes and their neck is stretched out like this. And they're actually eagerly waiting. We're curious about them, but they're actually more curious about us. They're longing and they're watching to see how God will bring about his plan of salvation. You and I both know the world is a really messed up place right now, right? The angels know this. And right now, they're watching and waiting and waiting and waiting to see how God will reveal the end plan of this gospel. I think that's pretty amazing. Then, get this, at the perfect time, God chooses to send one of these angels to deliver this good news, the very thing that they were longing to see unfold since sin had entered the world. Can you think of someone, maybe you can, who can't contain the joy of a secret, like a good secret? Can you think of someone, I see some parents looking at their kids I asked Carolyn this question, and actually, it's funny because we both thought of the same exact person, and maybe Rob is thinking about the same person too. 
Just a couple of weeks ago, Marcos uh, was telling me that he knew what he wanted to get me for, for Christmas. And as he said this, I could just see the excitement in his eyes. As much as I wanted to know what it was, I really think that I can say without a doubt that he wanted me to know more than I wanted to know. So this is where we find Gabriel. I don't really know what his emotions were. We do know angels have emotions. Maybe it was with the same kind of excitement that Marcos had in his eyes, heading towards Galilee, ready to break the news to Mary. To be honest, I'm not sure what his tone was or what he looked like as he broke this news to her, but the exclamation point in verse 28 makes me want to believe that he was at a Marcos level of excited about this good news. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. The word favored here is communicating the idea that God is extending himself to freely bestow grace toward Mary. He's extending himself to give grace to Mary. Not because she is good, not because she's worthy, not even because she has kept herself pure and had not lost her virginity. It's none of that. God's favor or God's grace toward Mary is totally a free gift. She didn't earn it. She didn't deserve it, actually. In other words, God loved her because God loved her, even in her sin and all. Sometimes it's easy to get caught up in such a merit-based love for God, one that drives us to do something for his love, or one that drives us um, to give something to him so that he can give something back to us. God's view of Mary here reminds us that even before Mary was faithful to God or believed in God, he approached her and he drew her in. After years and years and generations and generations of longing to see how God's promise would be fulfilled, I'm not sure if Gabriel was ready for Mary's troubled response. But then again, maybe he was because it seems like fear is the usual response of every angel when they approach a human being. But something is a little bit different here in verse 29. Luke specifically points out that Mary was troubled by what Gabriel was saying and that she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Why would she be troubled by such a warm greeting? Uh, I, I don't remember all the different visitations of angels, but I feel like this is the most cheery one that I've, I've ever seen, saying greetings, oh favored one. This greeting proclaimed that God was bestowing his grace toward her and that the Lord himself was with her. Why was she troubled? Does that strike you as kind of odd? It sticks out especially because it says that she was troubled by the sayings of what Gabriel was saying. Well, now, there's a possibility that Mary feels troubled by these sayings because maybe she feels like she doesn't deserve any kind of grace from God. Or she doesn't deserve his favor. Why should the holy God come to me and give his favor to me? Why should I receive something so good? In fact, if God was sending Gabriel to bestow grace upon Mary, doesn't that imply that she was unworthy? That she was at the mercy of the one giving her grace? That she was sinful? Now, unlike Zechariah and Elizabeth, who we read about in Luke chapter 1, verse 6, just a couple paragraphs up, Luke makes no mention of Mary's righteousness before God 
or how she walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes before the Lord. Actually, Luke literally just says, here's Mary, she was a virgin, and that's it. If Mary was indeed perfect, if she had absolutely no sin, wouldn't she perk up at Gabriel's call? Wouldn't she have expected some kind of bestowal of God's favor, knowing full well that she deserved it because she was working so hard for it, right? She was being so good. She was a good person. But we see here she doesn't, and I wonder if that reveals a heart posture that is fully aware of how far she falls short of God's grace. A deep understanding that she actually was a sinner. This is Mary. Whatever fear she had, Gabriel seeks to quell it by reminding her again that God was looking on her with favor, no matter what she had done or not done, no matter how sinful she had been. In verse 31, we learn that by God's grace, Mary was going to conceive and bear a son. His grace is seen in the fact that the sinner, like Mary, was chosen to bear the child who would carry out God's grand plan of salvation and redemption of the world. But who would this child be? Who is this child that Mary would bear? Gabriel gives us four things that we can be certain about. Here's that word again, certainty. Gabriel gives us four things that we can be certain about regarding the identity of Mary's son. So here's the first one. Certainty number one. Mary's son, he will save us from our sin. Very simple. Gabriel tells Mary that she shall name the child Jesus. Now at first glance, because we're so familiar with the name Jesus, it's easy to overlook the significance of it. In fact, to be honest with you guys, until about four weeks ago, I, I didn't even know what the name Jesus meant. Kind of, it's kind of sad. Carolyn didn't know either, so, so it's missed better. <laughs> Why Jesus? What's the significance of that name? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever looked up the name of Jesus and what it means? Well, the Jesus, although it's a Greek translation into English and um, in Hebrew it's a different name, it means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. The name Jesus that Mary's son would bear would serve to bear witness to what he was being sent into the world to do, which is to save it. Whether you know it or not, or whether you believe it or not, you and I both have sin. We're sinners. Surprise. Sin isn't just doing bad things or being a bad person. Sin is actively rejecting the very God who made us in love to know him and to honor him. If we go on in our rejecting God until the day that we die, do you know what we'll get? We'll get what we wanted. We'll get what we wanted and we'll be separated from the loving kindness of a good God forever and that's what we call hell. But Jesus is our salvation as his name says. God is our salvation. God in his love for you and me sent us his son and he lived a perfect and blameless life and never sinned once. You guys know how this gospel story goes. And at the right time, he went to the cross to die and pay for the sins of all who would trust in him, both wicked and not that wicked, but you're still wicked though, so that we could be forgiven. On that cross, he took on the full wrath of God on sin. Because God is just and he's good, he has to punish what is wrong. That's why hell exists. It's not that he's evil. It's, he has to punish what's wrong. 
and that's our rebellion for our rejection of him. Jesus died for his enemies so that we could be forgiven. This Jesus is the one that the angels were longing to witness for as long as they could remember. This Jesus is the promised Savior that all the Old Testament people were waiting for and they died waiting for, but in faith. This Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, all of the promises that are made in the Old Testament. And this Jesus is the one that you can trust, that I can trust for salvation and forgiveness. Acts 4.12 says, uh, it's not going to be up there, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. His name is Jesus, and he saved us from our sin. Saved you, saved me, and anyone else that would come to trust in him. Certainty number two, the greatest of all time. He will be great. That's it. He will be great. I can't help but visualize being in like a second grade classroom and receiving like a test back with a sticker that says great on it. Not an excellent sticker, not awesome, not fantastic with an exclamation point, but just great. Just a notch above nice. But is that what great is when it's describing Jesus? This word great is also another word that we see so common that doesn't seem, it seems like it falls flat. But what it's describing or who it's describing is so much bigger than what we think it is or who he is. Mary was about to bear a child who would truly be the greatest of all time. Not just in one expertise like Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky or Josh Allen. Not just in one expertise, but in everything he worked at, he was great. He was the greatest. When you observe the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you can truly say that no one did anything better than Jesus did. There was no one that taught like he did. Everywhere he went, the crowd followed. People marveled at what they heard, and they claimed that they never heard anyone teach like this with such authority before. And every time the Pharisees tried to stump him with their, their questions, Jesus worked his greatness to take that moment and actually teach his disciples and also correct the Pharisees at the same time. There was no one who could love like Jesus did. Oh, there's no one that can love like Jesus did. Approaching the most despised and hated people, the prostitutes, the lepers, the lame, the tax collectors, friend of sinners, concerned so deeply about their souls that he was willing to go to all those that society had canceled to preach the gospel to them, to heal them, to love them. It's one thing to approach the outcast, but then to step off his throne, to humble himself and to become a man, and then die for those who rejected him, I really think that's the definition of love. When you lay down your life for another, as Jesus said. No one could cook like he did. I wonder what that would taste like to, cook, to eat what he cooked. No one could make bread like he did. No one could multiply bread like he did. No one could sleep peacefully on a boat in the middle of a storm like he did. And then no one could calm the storms with his words like he did. Jesus was truly, in a sense of the word, he was great, the greatest of all time. Certainty number three, son of the most high. 
Gabriel then says that he will be the son of the Most High. Nothing gets higher than Most High. And that term for Most High is referring to God because nothing is higher than, than God. He is the Most High. So by wordplay and substitution, by the law of substitution, Jesus was the Son of God. When we go down to verse 34, Mary asks Gabriel, how will she bear a child if she is a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Uh, you can follow with me at verse 35. And the, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. Though Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary, she conceived by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High. What I find intriguing is that a physician, Luke was a physician, and clearly he, he was in, known for his detail. He doesn't even attempt to explain how that even happened. Like a lot of the things that we're reading here in this chapter, but also all throughout Luke and probably all throughout the Bible, it seems like crazy stuff to us, right? We might be tempted to think that back in those days, miracles and angels and things like this always happened, but everything that Luke is writing is actually just as ordinary, extraordinary to them as it would have been for us. These are extraordinary things. And Jesus being the Son of God, what that proved was that he was in the very essence God. He was God. Now, certainty number four, last one. He will be king forever. Up until this point, all the previous points of certainty have already happened. So Jesus, uh, but this one, him reigning forever, that has yet to fully happen. I say fully because, yes, Jesus is king now. He's ruling and he's sovereign. But we also know that Satan still is lurking around. That he's still alive and his devils are all around with him. And that sin is still here. We still see the evil in the world. We still see hate and we still experience the pain of our broken bodies. We still experience the grief of fighting sin. The creation is still marred by sin. There are still wars and there's still sorrow and there's still tears. But this passage is getting us to turn our heads to look forward to a day when that won't happen anymore. One day, these things won't be. And now we join with the angels and the faithful saints that have gone before us. And we too now, on our tippy toes, next stretched, we long for a day when Jesus will return to make things new again. That's the hope of a believer is that Christ has done this for us so that we can expect that one day, not here on this earth, one day in eternity, things will be amazing. They'll be great. We long for the day when he returns to finally make an end of Satan, to put an end to sin, and to redeem all things. Jesus, from the line of David, born of the Virgin Mary, which both were prophecies fulfilled through this birth, he will reign forever, forever. Given all these certainties, how did Mary respond? Let's read through verses 34 through 38. Verses 34 through 38 says, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the, most, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. 
And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, until this moment where Gabriel showed up to Zechariah, which is a few verses before, technically six months ago, and then to Mary, it had been over 400 years since an angel appeared. 400 years. It had been over 400 years since God had spoken to his people. A 400-year drought. And then Gabriel comes up and drops this huge news. Now, do you find it a little bit odd that Mary was so quick to believe? Initially, of course, she had a fear and that Gabriel uh, was saying. Initially, of course, she had fear of what Gabriel was saying. But in a matter of a few sentences and one specific prophecy about a child Mary would bear, she seemed now to be eager to know how this would happen if she does not have a husband or if they don't do it. And then the angel gives her another response. But she has no questions about it. The angel tells her that with God, these things are possible. And it looks like that was certainty enough for Mary. She believed. That was it. That's all she needed. She didn't have any explosion in her stomach to, to give her a cue that she was pregnant. She didn't have anything that told her anything. It just was this angel told her, this is what's going to happen. And at the end of verse 45, Elizabeth commends Mary and says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She heard or she read or she took the words of God and she believed it. It seems so simple, but Mary took it in and with certainty she believed and walked out her faith, bearing the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So as we close today, I want to end with a quick question and a simple application. Very quick question. That's actually going to turn into multiple questions and then a simple application. And I hope that you can, as you leave, keep this question in mind. And here's the question. Is your life being shaped by the certainties of the gospel? Is your life being, being shaped by the certainties of the gospel? Luke and Mary were two people we talked about today who had such certainty about who Jesus was that it led them to follow him, no matter what it would cost him. You may know that especially during their days, being a follower of Christ was not the most comfortable of choices. In fact, in some places like Rome, you could be killed for your faith and you would be killed for your faith or you'd be blamed for crimes that you didn't do. The Bible doesn't make light of the fact that following Christ, means, uh, following Christ means picking up our crosses and getting ready to die to ourselves, die to our own desires for the sake of others and to the glory of God. It's hard. So I want us to ask ourselves, is our life being shaped by the certainties of the gospel? If it is true, is it affecting your heart like it actually is true? Or do you just say it's true and you just go about your life without making anything happen? Are the certainties of the gospel, here's the, the waterfall of questions that are for me too. Are the certainties of the gospel 
shaping how we love our spouses or how we raise our kids or how we love our neighbors, how we choose to put them before ourselves. Do the certainties of gospel lead you to do that? Do the certainties of the gospel shape how we endure suffering, especially when there doesn't seem like there's going to be any end to it or any solution or any explanation? Do the certainties of the gospel and the future glory that we have with Christ change that situation for you, that circumstance for you, even if that specific issue is not going not to change? Are the certainties of the gospel shaping how we engage with our tough coworkers or people that we just don't want to talk to? Is it shaping how we spend our money or how we spend uh, our time investing our money into something? These are hard questions, but it's the gospel that shows us how we do these things, and it's the power of Christ that gives us the strength to stretch ourselves in this way, not just because we're trying to give things up for the sake of giving it up, but because by giving up ourselves for the sake of others or for the sake of Christ, actually, it'll be more rewarding. It'll be more fulfilling. I think this past Friday, we were talking to the youth, and one of the youth was saying that they were, I think Shailen was sharing this story. I don't know who it, who it was, but they were cooking for some kind of event, and they were complaining about cooking for this event, for, for a charity event, I believe. And after that was done, and they actually donated the food, and they saw the look on the person's face, they were like, oh, you know what? I, I actually liked doing that. Is the gospel shaping us in those kind of ways? For the sake of others, because that benefits the kingdom of God. And so here's an application point that I wanted to end with. Maybe you're here and you're not yet following Christ or you have no desire to just yet pursue him or commit to him. Or maybe you're like Theophilus and you would like some kind of certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Maybe you've been attending church all your life and there's still no certainty about what you're hearing on a weekly basis. Luke seems to make it plain and simple that by reading the very words, one may have certainty concerning the things about Christ. So if you are someone who is genuinely searching or desiring to know Christ, I want to challenge you to read through the whole book of Luke. Read through it, and while you read through it, look for the things that talk about Christ, which is going to be on every page, but focus on the person of Christ. Who is he? What's he like? How is he treating people? And then imagine that this person that you're reading about is actually the same person that loves you the same way, and he died for you when you get to the end of that chapter. Read through each page. Read through and see how Luke describes his childhood. Luke is the only book that talks about Jesus' childhood when he was in the temple, when he was 12 years, 12 years old or something. Read and see what this life of this man who existed 2,000 years ago is like. And see that this is the one, though he existed 2,000 years ago, that came and he died for your sins so that you can have life, so that you can have a hope in this life, whether you are healed or not, whether you have all the money in the world or not, or whether you're broke, that you can have a hope in this life that it is worth following him no matter what the cost is let's pray uh, father i thank you so much for your grace 
Lord, we know that though we want certainty of what your word says, and though we want to believe with all our hearts what the, the word of Luke says of, of the certainties of knowing you, at the end of the day, we also know that, Lord, we need your help to open our eyes to see that. Lord, we need your help to open our eyes to see the needs we have for you. We need your help to open our eyes to see that without you, there's no purpose, Lord, ultimately. Maybe for 80 years, but that's it. We need your help to see that, Father. I pray for those that don't know you and that want to know you and those that don't want to know you. I pray that you would save them, Lord. I pray that you would help us to increase in our desires. And as we put these words into our heart, Lord, that it would become the very fiber of our hearts and that it would cause us to change. Not just because we want to brag about being better, but actually because we want to be useful for your kingdom. We want to be part of your team, Lord, that one day will rule forever. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray.